Welcome to East Hills Alliance Church. We are everyday people following Jesus every day. Amen. Thank you, worship team. Uh, And thank you, church, for uh, engaging your hearts to whatever level you feel able this morning. It is uh, good to be part of a group of people that are engaging in um, not only what we are doing together, but uh, in supporting and encouraging each other as well. And even if you were dragged here this morning, you're here. Might as well engage. Uh, We are on week four of five in our Thorny Issues series, looking at topics that we can get hung up on. Uh, We asked you guys to submit a bunch of different ideas for uh, things that fall into that kind of category. Sometimes these are things that keep people away from Jesus or away from participating in church because they are worried about uh, what the answer might be. It doesn't match what they would like it to be, or they just aren't sure uh, how they're going to be treated, or maybe they're quite sure how they're going to be treated and don't want to be a part of it. Uh, Sometimes these are issues that hold Christians back from doing the most important thing Jesus told us to do, which is to love other people, because we're afraid that if we uh, love somebody else, we might end up affirming them in both good ways and ways we don't mean to. And so we get hung up and stuck. I mentioned at the beginning of this series that we would not get to everything, but we would cover as much as we could in five weeks. Many of the things that you submitted will not be talked about this week or next, but I think you'll see them pop up here and there in the coming weeks and months. So before we move forward, since there is a limit to how much we can cover, I want to review where we've been uh, because it is going to inform where we're going today. So we started in week one by asking the question, is God good? And if God is good, why do bad things happen? And if you are thinking back on a sermon and you're racking your brain and you're going, yeah, what was the really easy answer that Josh gave us to that question? Uh, There isn't one, so I didn't. Uh, we mostly just asked uh, a whole lot of questions, and we, we did talk about what Scripture says about God being good and being with us and being loving and, uh, and, and all those things that are in there, but I also understand that these are the kinds of questions that we all have to wrestle with, and, and a preacher giving you the biblical answers is just no substitute for your own wrestling and your own investigation of what the Bible says to you and to all of us. But as we asked all of these questions, it led us to this ultimate question uh, that we keep bringing up because it informs how we approach, how we see, how we filter all of these thorny issues. And the question is this, is God wise enough, present enough, and loving enough to know what is good for me? Is God wise enough, present enough, loving enough to know what is actually good for me? In other words, can, can I trust God's goodness and love? If, if God says something is good or bad, can I trust that? Does he actually know what's good for me? Or are the ways of God just sort of an, an outdated, old-fashioned relic? And we talked about how Jesus' story actually, I would submit, is 
the most logical outcome, if there is a God who has made the world and wants to redeem it, who is both just and loving. And then we spent week two defining what love is. We see God's love demonstrated in the Bible through the life and the teaching and the death of Jesus. And Jesus told us that the greatest thing we can do is to love God and love our neighbor. And by neighbor, he meant all the people. So what do we mean when we say that we will love our neighbor, our coworker, our enemy? Uh, we defined love this way. And again, uh, as I said before, not a total definition, but I think it gets us on the right track, that love is a commitment to and an active kindness toward someone's greatest good. Love is a commitment to and an active kindness toward someone's greatest good. A commitment to see the most good happen for that person, whether we agree with them or not. And that can, commitment then, then is demonstrated in active kindness. We read in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is patient and kind. It is not rude and it is not boastful. And we talked about how culture's definition of love, that love is not only kindness, but it is agreement and it is championing somebody's cause, just cannot be the Jesus follower definition of love because we are called to love our enemies, let alone anybody that we disagree with. There has to be room for disagreement and still loving somebody. And then last week, we talked about scripture, our bodies, and stereotypes. Specifically, we talked about the uh, American church's, I think, misplaced commitment to fighting for or against the stereotypes of masculine and feminine. Uh, a commitment that has pushed so many people away from the church because they don't feel like they can fit into the boxes or they feel like they'd have to leave their masculinity at the door or they feel like they'd have to wear pink every week or whatever it may be. But the truth is that we are not called to be more masculine or feminine. We are called to be more like Jesus. We are called to be more like Jesus. If we are following him, that is who we are trying to become. And in our fighting for or against the stereotypes, what we seem to have missed is that we then are pointing people towards the world's definitions of them instead of pointing people toward Jesus. And I think we've forgotten sometimes that we are supposed to love people more than we love stereotypes. By the way, all of these sermons can be found in the, sorry, commercial break. Commercial break. All of these sermons can be found uh, in the East Hills Sermon Podcast player. Uh, so uh, you can search for East Hills Sermon Podcast in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, go to our website, go to the Church Center app. All those things are there. Okay. Returning from commercial, uh, we also asked the question last week, why are our bodies important to our faith? Why is it that scripture talks so much about how we treat our bodies, how we see our bodies, how we treat the bodies of others? And so in talking about what scripture says about bodies, we took a moment to talk about scripture itself and some presumptions I'm making about scripture. And I want to share those again today, reiterate those because because uh, they're important to all of the things that we are talking about. Uh, I'm presuming, and I believe, that Scripture 
was not written to us, but it is written for us. It was not written to people in America in 2023. It was written uh, by people and to people who lived in a different time, in a different culture, with different expectations, with different biases, with different perspectives. And yet it was written for us that it was preserved by God and by people so that we would know about God's love for us and what is good for us. Now, it was preserved carefully, um, meaningfully, intentionally. Uh, It it is not a 3,000-year-old game of telephone, uh, but it was preserved, again, by people who live in their own time and place with perspectives and biases And it is good to be aware of that. And it's good to be aware of some copy errors and what a gift we have actually, that there are so many different translations of the Bible in English that we have access to all of this so that we can look at the word of God and go, what what is it really saying? Because while I don't believe that God reached down and grabbed a pencil and wrote the Bible, and I don't believe that he puppeted people to do it. I do believe that the scriptures are, as one scripture says, God breathed, that they are poured out of God, that he has inspired people to write and to preserve, that he himself has protected and preserved the word that is for us and for us to see uh, his love for us, to see what is good for us. So, We then talked about the Bible's teachings that our bodies are God-made, God-inhabited, that we are eternally bodied. And the scripture's clear message, starting in the very first chapter in Genesis 1, scripture's very clear message is that our biological bodies, whether male and female or one of the 7 million plus Americans whose chromosomes don't match their physical bodies, the clear message of scripture is that our bodies image God. The the Bible says God chose to paint a picture for the world of who God is by making us male and female embodied and visible. And so how we treat and use and see our bodies really matters. And that is what I want to pick up and run with today. For anyone who is listening to this on podcast, anybody watching at home uh, with little ears in the room, uh, heads up that if your kids continue to listen to this sermon, they may learn some words that are going to lead to awkward conversations for you. Heads up. All right. Last week, we looked at the last couple verses uh, of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I want to go back there uh, this morning. Uh, we looked at this as part of the evidence of, the, of how important our bodies are. So I'll read uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. This is Paul writing to the Corinthian church in the first century. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. As I said last week, of all of the incredible sounding things that we believe, the the seemingly illogical and insane things we believe. I mean, we believe that God inhabited a human body 
that, that there is this guy, Jesus, who not only died, but was raised from the dead. And not only was he raised from the dead, but that had incredible, everlasting consequences and effect on eternity. With all of that, I think the most incredible, crazy thing we believe is that after Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, he left behind what he called the Spirit of God. And this was no longer just God inhabiting one human, but the Spirit of God went out into everybody who signs up to follow Jesus. That when we say, yep, I am following Jesus with my life, the Scripture teaches us that God's Holy Spirit dwells in us And so Paul is reminding the Corinthians, hey, God's spirit has moved into you. That makes you a temple. Just like the Jewish temple of old before us, where God's spirit hung out in the temple, God's spirit now hangs out in us. Now, why did Paul need to remind the Corinthians of this? I fully admit we plucked this, these two verses completely out of context and didn't talk about the context at all last week, so let's do that now. We're going to back up to verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6, and we will run up to this passage. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Pause. Isn't it amazing? Uh, Maybe it's not amazing to you. It is amazing to me that we can read a list like this and we can grab one particular item on a list and we can elevate it over all the rest of them. And we seem to do that with the ones that aren't our challenge, right? <laughs> they, oh, yeah, that one. Y'all, being drunk, cheating on your taxes, cheating at cards, it's on the same list as sexual immorality, okay? Now, there are reasons that we're gonna read why people elevate sexual immorality above the rest, uh, they, they come up later in this, this chapter. Um, but, but even those are simply about how our sexual immorality has a greater effect on our bodies. This, this is not a ranked list, okay? This is all here listed together. Continuing, verse 11. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though, quote, I'm allowed to do anything, quote, end quote, I must not become a slave to anything. Okay, there is freedom in Christ. That's what Paul is talking about here. We have freedom in Christ, that when we come to Jesus, he sets us free from the claim that sin has on our lives and from the eternal consequences of it. So that's where this I'm allowed to do anything comes from. But he also says, clearly not everything is good for you, which brings us back to our big question, right? Who gets to determine what is good? And is God wise enough and present enough and loving enough to get to be the one who determines what is good for you? When it comes down to, is this a good thing or not? Can I trust the God who made me to know what is good or is that decision up to me? He continues, verse 13. 
You say, food was made for the stomach and stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. I mean, we can't say it any clearer than that, right? The Lord cares about our bodies. Question is, why? He continues, and God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her. For the scriptures say the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Our bodies matter to God because they are God-inhabited and eternally renewed. And remember, he is talking directly to Christians, to Jesus' followers. And he says to them, look, the, the reason why you, Jesus' followers, should run away from sexual sin is because it violates our status and significance as a temple of the living God. That that, that's the primary reason why we should flee from sexual sin because it violates our status as a temple. We have God's spirit alive and at work in us and adultery and other sexual misuses of our body are infractions against that spirit and our own temple-ness. Now, before we go too much farther, I also just want to uh, acknowledge and the, acknowledge the obvious <laughs> that of all the things listed in this chapter, in 2023, the most controversial or the most talked about of things on that list is homosexuality. Not saying it should be, it just is. Okay? And for both uh, those who are for this action and uh, against this action. And I use the word action very intentionally because let it never be said of us that we are against a person. But those who are for this action and against this action have looked very carefully at scripture and have dug in and have seen what the Bible has to say and come to very different conclusions. Now, there are also people who have pulled things completely out of context, built an entire perspective on one verse, usually the one that matched the perspective they came to the scripture with, and said, this is what I'm going to run with. Both absolutely have happened. I am not going to spend a lot of our time this morning going through those verses and those arguments, but I know that there are some of you who are really interested in that. And so here's what we're going to do. Uh, next week for our thorny issues series during the sermon time, we are going to move on to something else. Again, 
limited amount of time. But because we know people are interested in what does the Bible really have to say about each of these things, next Sunday morning at nine o'clock downstairs, um, we're going to talk about homosexuality and the Bible. And it really is going to be a Bible study on where does this term come up? How have people uh, dealt with these verses? Why do we come to the conclusions that we come to? And Pastor Sky is going to be leading that next week. So please join us downstairs at nine. Bring your coffee, bring your breakfast. We're going to be surrounded by big Operation Christmas Child boxes. And we will talk about uh, this subject. Uh, If you are interested to dig in, learn more, Um, or simply know how we come to our conclusions. Uh, I'm excited that Pastor Sky is uh, teaching it, not only because I think he is a fantastic uh, Bible studier and teacher. There's got to be a better word for studier. Student, that's the word. That's the word most normal people use. Anyway, an excellent Bible student and teacher, uh, but also because, frankly, in our culture, um, this topic, the, the point of the spear of this topic and of um, people who are debating and talking about this is in our teenagers. Uh, And so Sky has done a lot of research and put a lot of thought into it, and I'm excited he is going to share those with us next week. Uh, Also, some of you are curious what our denomination's perspective is on some of these things. Uh, Have we taken a stance? What is that stance? Uh, We are part of the Christian Missionary Alliance, and yes, uh, there is a stance and a perspective. Uh, In fact, if you go to uh, our website, easthills.org slash beliefs, easthills.org slash beliefs, or just go to our website, grab what we believe from a drop-down menu, uh, you will go to a page that not only has our statement of faith on it, but has links to a bunch of different perspectives on a whole host of issues uh, from the Christian Missionary Alliance, uh, race, sexuality, etc. cetera. Uh, if you would prefer a paper copy, uh, in the back, if you go out into the foyer, turn all the way to the right, uh, to the base of the stairs of the balcony there, there's a table where there's a couple of stacks of papers, one um, on the Alliance perspective on gender and one on the Alliance perspective on sexuality. So you can read those as well. If the paper ones disappear and you really want a paper one, let me know. I will make sure you get one. So we're not going to spend a lot of time today going through uh, chapter and verse of a bunch of different arguments. I do want to look at one more passage that talks about sexual immorality um, in in a number of different ways, actually. Uh, And it is the one that I think we're most uncomfortable with in our modern mindset, or at least I am most uncomfortable with. Uh, So we're going to go to Leviticus chapter 20. Leviticus chapter 20. And I will just start in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses... Give the people of Israel these instructions, which apply both to native Israelites and the foreigners living in Israel. If any of them offer their children as a sacrifice to Molech, who's a different God worshiped by other people, they must be put to death. The people of the community must stone them to death. Okay, I just personally, in my opinion, my perspective, I am uncomfortable with death as a consequence for death the vast majority of things, like everything. Sacrificing your children to another God probably goes on my list of okay, fine. But uh, it just wrestles with my my upbringing and my perspective. Why do I read this, this passage? Well, because it sets up the tone of the rest of this chapter. Skipping to verse six. 
God says, I will also turn against those who commit spiritual prostitution by putting their trust in mediums or in those who consult the spirits of the dead. I will cut them off from the community. So basically, calling 1-800-PSYCHICS is spiritual prostitution. And that's what it's saying. Hmm. Okay. Uh, he's going to list a whole bunch more things. But first... Before we get into the rest of it, God, I think, nails for us what the heart of all this is. Why is God listing a bunch of things that may or may not make us uncomfortable? Verse 7, so set yourselves apart to be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep all my decrees by putting them into practice, for I am the Lord who makes you holy. God is trying to set up a group of people into being a long-lasting nation. And he says, part of what I want for you is I want good for you, which means I want to guide you into holiness. I want to guide you into the goodness that I have for you, okay? He then walks through, as I said, a number of other situations, starting with verse nine. Anyone who dishonors father or mother must be put to death. Such a person is guilty of a capital offense. Okay. Um, crochet that one and frame it by your front door, huh? Uh, hey, teenagers, heads up. In incoming rocks. Anyway, um, uh, I'm very uncomfortable with this particular verse. I'm getting booed from the balcony, which is, a, that's, that's fine. That's fine. We'll just keep moving. Verse 10. If a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the man and the woman who have committed adultery must be put to death. If a man violates his father by having sex with one of his father's wives, both the man and the woman must be put to death, for they are guilty of a capital offense. If a man has sex with his daughter-in-law, both must be put to death. They have committed a perverse act and are guilty of a capital offense. If a man practices homosexuality, having sex with another man as with a woman, both men have committed a detestable act. They must both be put to death, for they are guilty of a capital offense. If a a man marries both a woman and her mother. Why? He has committed a wicked act. The man and both women must be burned to death to wipe out such wickedness from among you. Yikes. If a man has sex with an animal, he must be put to death and the animal must be killed. If a woman presents herself to a male animal to have intercourse with it, she and the animal must both be put to death. You must kill both for they are guilty of a capital offense. If a man marries his sister, the daughter of either his father or his mother, and they have sexual relations, it is a shameful disgrace. They must be publicly cut off from the community since the man has violated his sister. He will be punished for his sin. And I'm going to stop. You get the idea. Yeah. Okay. What, what can we take away from a passage like this? Uh, well, perhaps we take away that we are not nearly hard enough on disrespectful children. But I don't think that's what we're supposed to take away from this passage. Uh, perhaps for you, you read this and go, yep, Leviticus as a whole has just got to go. Like, we, the, no way. Like, we've already gotten rid of the touching dead pigskin and the mixing fabrics, and just the whole thing has got to go. Now, I don't personally agree with you, but I'm not going to argue with, to, with you today, and here's why. Because whichever stance we take, that there are things from this that we want to really hold on to, and let's be real, there are some things in that list that we, would, we want to hold on to as being not okay. But whatever in this we want to hold on to, I, or if you just want to go, nope, Old Testament, 
way long ago, different people just wipe the thing. Either way, if we are trying to follow God with our lives, there has to be some sort of principle in here of what God cares about and how God goes about leading us into good things. There's got to be something about God's character that does last through here. So what principle can we take away from this passage? And I think it goes back to the heart of this passage, that God is guiding us toward holiness, that God wants good for us, and it's leading us into holiness, and specifically for our discussion today, the holiness of our bodies matters to God. And we see that in Leviticus 20. We see that in 1 Corinthians 6. In 1 Corinthians 6, holiness of our bodies really matters to God. But I also know that holiness can sound like a very churchy word and very hard to wrap our brain around and figure out how, I mean, I, I can't get anywhere near that. So I want to break holiness down into two different words that maybe can serve as a different way of, of filtering uh, or, or a lens for us to look at our lives and how we use and see and treat our bodies. So because the holiness of our bodies matters to God, the loyalty of our bodies matters to God. Because the holiness matters, the loyalty of our bodies matters. Uh, this Leviticus 20 passage in total is about loyalty. Loyalty to God, loyalty to parents, loyalty to community, loyalty to one sexual partner. The loyalty of our bodies, of our biology, of our orgasms, of our obedience is significant to God because he knows how significant loyalty is to healthy relationships and healthy communities. To, to workplaces, to families, to churches, to greater community, the loyalty that we carry with us is significant to healthy relationships and healthy community. He knows what he made us for and what is good for us. So with that in mind, can we talk about premarital sex for a moment? Uh, because I grew up in 90s church purity culture, and because I did 15 years of youth ministry, and this subject came up quite a few times, unsurprisingly, far more with parents than with the teenagers. But uh, because of all that, uh, I have some thoughts. And historically, I have actually, I have personally found it easier to make a secular argument against premarital sex than a scriptural one. And here's what I mean. We know that socially there are difficulties that come with getting pregnant at a young age, with being parent at a young age, or with being a parent without the security of a sturdy long-term marriage relationship. We should know that those are, are there. That's a risk that, that people run. We know that. Scientifically, the more that we learn about the brain and specifically uh, about how our brain engages sexually, uh, the better this or easier this argument becomes. Because what we're learning is that uh, our brains, particularly in a first-time consensual sexual encounter, that, that first orgasmic partner, our brains create a bond with that other person, specifically, or, or most especially in female bodies, but for both parties, there is a bond created that is really, really, really hard to undo. 
because we are made for loyalty and our brains know it. Now, scripturally, there's definitely an argument to be made here. And I think part of why this argument has fallen flat for me historically so often is because the argument I'm seeing is being made by freaked out parents who go to the Bible because they know what they don't want their kids to do. And they're like, there's got to be some verse in here somehow that supports me and makes me not have a teenage parent for a kid. I think... Uh, I mean, and, and there are good verses in here. People go to Genesis and uh, uh, man and woman leave their parents and they become one and all that is good and that is God's design and that, that is fantastic. I think the scriptural argument may actually be easier to make in principle than in chapter and verse. And what I mean is, is that it's chapters like this in Leviticus 20 where Nowhere in here, because nowhere in this book does it say thou shalt not have sex before marriage, because in their culture, they didn't think they needed to spell that out. It just was a different time, different culture. But what we see in principle here is that the holiness of our bodies and the loyalty of our bodies really, really matters to God. And so not for every teenager, but for every teenager who is trying to follow God with their life, God wants us to pursue holiness, to pursue loyalty with our bodies. And loyalty with our bodies, according to God, is two people giving themselves to each other in a commitment of heart and mind and body. And what is good for us sexually is according to God, is the loyalty of one man and one woman, a committed loyalty to each other for all time, disregarding all others. This is what God says our sexuality was made for. What is good for us? Which brings us again back to our big question. Is God wise enough present enough and loving enough to know what is good for us. If he's going to say, this is what's good, is God involved enough in my life? Does God love me enough to actually know what is good for me? Can I trust that? When what I desire is not what God calls good, who wins? For those of you who I keep bringing this question up and you're going, actually, I think maybe my answer to this question is no. I really hope you will join us next week because we're going to talk about what we do. I mean, I'm not going to try to convince you that the answer to this question is yes. That won't be part of next week at all. What I do want to talk about is what do we do when answers to this question surprise us or we feel like they're not the answers they're supposed to be? What do we do? And how do we walk alongside people who are asking hard questions and coming up with answers that they didn't expect? So we'll talk about that next week. I hope you can be part of that. For God, it is his commitment to our greatest good that causes him to call us toward holiness. And because holiness matters to God, because the holiness of our bodies matters to God, then the loyalty and the dignity of our bodies matters to God. The dignity of our bodies matters to God. Treating our bodies with dignity and treating the bodies of others with dignity. 
seeing the God-made value in my body and in yours? Why do we inherently understand that sexual activity with someone who does not consent to it is bad? We just know that this is bad and this is evil. Why? Because we inherently understand that there needs to be dignity given to each and every body and that those kind of things violate the dignity and the personhood of the other person. For the Jesus follower, adultery in any of the forms listed in Leviticus 20 is not only a violation of loyalty, but it is a violation of the temple of your body and perhaps of theirs. And no matter what the world tells you, you do not have to be defined by what you desire. In fact, to reduce your body to its desires, urges, and attractions is to reduce your body to significantly undersell the dignity and the holiness of your body and to reduce someone else's body to the things that you are attracted to about it is to significantly violate the dignity of their God-made body. In Matthew chapter six, Jesus says that the man who lusts after a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Which, side note, this is not just a man problem. Uh, and, and most of y'all know that. Uh, feels like a whole lifetime ago, but a long, long time ago, I worked in a secular institution uh, that was predominantly women. And the way those women talked about, many of them, not all of them, talked about celebrity guys rivaled anything I heard in a high school baseball team locker room, okay? Whew. This is not just a guy problem. But... What happens for us, uh, and I should clarify, lust is not just a thought or an attraction, okay? Uh, desires and temptations are going to happen. Lust happens when you violate the dignity of another by reducing them to your attractions. Jesus' point is that lust means we have been disloyal in our hearts and we have violated the dignity of another body. We've done both. We've been disloyal in our hearts and we have violated the dignity of another body. And so he makes this a really big deal. People were feeling like, as long as I don't commit adultery, as long as there's nothing physical in my body, he says, no, no. No, the call is to holiness. And if you violate loyalty and dignity, you are already past it. I want to actually take us to a different passage in Matthew, though. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, starting in, uh, I'll start in verse 9, a story of Jesus calling Matthew. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who, are, who know they are sinners. Matthew is called by Jesus. He leaves his tax collector booth 
and he's now following Jesus. And then a little later, he throws a dinner party and he invites Jesus and Jesus's other close followers to come to that party. And let's look at verse 10 again. Let's see this invite. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many former tax collectors and other repentant sinners. That's not actually what it says. (laughs) Matthew left his tax collector booth. And we know that he followed Jesus and he left all of that behind. We do not know that about anybody that Jesus was eating with. To be sure, many of the tax collectors, we don't know what disreputable sinners means. We could guess, but we don't even need to. For sure, many of the tax collectors knew what they were doing was wrong and they felt guilty about it. But also for sure, many of them would have been able to justify their actions as okay. Look, I'm doing what I have to do to survive. Look, nobody in my family is going to eat if I don't take the Roman money. Look, if Rome is going to occupy us anyway, like if you can't beat them, join them, right? Like they could absolutely justify what they were doing as okay. Jesus saw the sickness. Here's the thing. We know that the holiness that God created us and all of creation with was violated by this disease we call sin, this infection that is in all of us and in everything around us. And Jesus saw it in them, just like he saw it in everybody else. That's why he was here, to do something about it. He didn't uh, condemn them. He didn't shame them. He didn't agree with them any more than a doctor agrees with a broken bone. He just, he saw it. And he sat with them and he ate with them and he talked with them. Uh, Many of you know uh, my story, um, so I'm not gonna tell the whole thing. So if the little snippet here sounds flippant, I apologize, I've just, I've told it a lot. Part of my story is living a double life my first eight years of marriage. That publicly I was a pastor and in ministry and privately I was into pornography and it messed up uh, everything about how I saw myself and saw the world. I hurt a lot of people living that double life, most especially my wife. And as I look back on it, there were a lot of lies that I was believing at the time. As I look back on it, one of the things that I know is true about that time is that Jesus was with me. He even had the audacity to use me and work through me sometimes. Like some good things actually happened in ministry despite the mess that I was. And in the 12 years since I last looked at pornography, even in the times when disloyalty and disrespect and and a lack of dignity overwhelms my heart and my mind, Jesus is still with me. Uh, Gentlemen, uh, if you struggle with loyalty and dignity in your heart, your mind, your body, if it's messing up your relationships, uh, we have another group starting in January. 
We've done a lot of these groups through the years. There's another one starting up in January. Uh, you'll hear more about it as we get closer. Uh, but what that means is that you have about six weeks to figure out how to muster up the courage to send me an email or shoot me a text and tell me you need in. Uh, and I'm not saying you have six weeks to figure out whether you need in. Like if you're sitting here, you're hearing this, you're at home, you're hearing this, and you're going, I think that might be me. Uh, you have six weeks, give or take, to figure out how to work up the courage to shoot me an email or a text. Um, you're not going to overwhelm me. You're not going to disgust me. Um, I've seen it. I've heard it. You do not have to stay stuck. Jesus has more for you than this. Jesus is with you right now, and he wants more for you than what you are experiencing. For any of us, for anyone who may struggle with keeping our heart, our mind, our body loyal. If you're trying to follow Jesus and you feel like you must be the only one struggling with this, if you kind of want to follow God, but your desires make you think, I probably can't do this because I got to follow what I desire, I need you to know that you are not alone. That many people struggle with these things as we try to follow Jesus, but more importantly, Jesus is with you. Jesus is with you, even as you struggle. Jesus went to the dinner party to be with the people who need him, and he is with you too. He's not condemned. He doesn't shame. He had every opportunity. The Pharisees show up and call these people scum, and he had every opportunity to go, yep, you're right, just scum. I'm just coming down from on high to let them know that life could be better if they would just do things my way. No, none of that. None of that. Again, he didn't agree with them. He just was there to love, to teach, to point them toward something more. Despite what some uh, angry or hurt or scared Christian may have told you at some point, God is not against you. And Jesus really is with you. And because Jesus is with you, we want to be with you too. We want to walk through life with you, to go through hard conversations together, to sit and eat with you. No matter what that struggle about dignity and loyalty looks like for you, whichever thing on one of these lists you would look at and go, yeah, that's me. We, we want to walk with you. And frankly, I can understand why your past experience with church people might make you think, no, I'm, I'm good, actually. I don't, I don't really want you to walk with me. But, but if you will have us, even if you're sitting at home right now, miles away, if you'd have us, we'd like to walk with you. Uh, we're, we're scared that in trying to love you, we might accidentally agree with something or affirm something that we don't mean to. 
But if Jesus is with you, then we want to be too. Uh, Church, politicians can talk about issues. Jesus' followers need to know that we are talking about people. And when we're doing politics, we can talk about issues. But when we are doing life day to day, we have to be talking with and walking with people. Pharisees can show up and put people in their categories and labels and just be all about, do you fit in the right category with the right label? Jesus followers show up and know that what we're really talking about is not categories and labels. We're talking about hearts and minds. Politicians and Pharisees can look at the opposite side, whoever they stuck on that enemy side, and say, we are against them. But again, let it never be said of us that we are against a person because God is not. They can condemn their enemies and call them scum. The Jesus follower shows up to love because that's what the one we're following did. Look, if Jesus didn't agree with people, then we shouldn't either. But if Jesus was committed to their greatest good, then we should be too. And if he showed up in active kindness for them, out of his love for them, then we should, we must, we have to do the same because that is the one we're following. So let me pray for us as we do that. Father God, I am so grateful that you are with us that whatever story we walked in here with today, you have been and you will be with us. That if we want to shove you away, you you let us do that. And we miss out on the story you have for us, but, but you'll stick with us. I'm absolutely convinced of it. I've experienced it. I'm grateful for it. God, we are all in need of your grace. We are in need of courage to make some hard steps, to have some hard conversations with ourselves, with you, with each other. Lord, we need you to be Lord. We need you to lead us, to guide us, to continue to call us to to more, to the love you said was so important, to remind us that we are loved by you, no matter what. Father, would you set free anyone who feels stuck this morning, free from their desires, free from their lusts, free from their self-condemnation, free from their shame. Jesus, would you call us to yourself? Just like you called Matthew, would you call us to follow? Leave it all behind and come pursue you and the life and the love that you have for us. Would you remind us of just how much your grace covers and how nothing separates us from your love? It is in the holy and mighty and life-changing name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. 
Thanks for checking out our podcast. You can learn more or connect with us online at easthills.org.